invite you to turn in your Bible this morning to Revelation chapter 6, as this morning we boldly go where I've never dared go before, which is past Revelation chapter 5. And so, um, so here we go, Revelation chapter 6, and it's a fascinating um, a, a text that shows us the beauty of Jesus. What we, uh, what we're going to... We're moving into a new section of the book. Uh, chapter 6 through 8, verse 5, belong together. Um, a, a vision of uh, seven seals. Later in the book, we'll come across seven trumpets, seven bowls. Uh, these, um, these snapshots uh, that we, or these, these uh, visions that, that John shows us are all um, dealing with um, the history of the world from the time of Christ. Uh, his ascension until his coming again. And so we'll be looking at that uh, together. But just to give you an idea of, of, of where we are, what's going on, uh, in chapter 4 and 5, if you remember, John had a vision of the door of heaven being opened, and he saw um, the uh, one on the throne, and there's a scroll in his hand, and no one was worthy to open that scroll. And then Jesus steps forward and, and uh, he takes the scroll, and now in chapter 6, Jesus begins opening the seals. And we'll see what happens as Jesus begins opening the seals of the scroll. Let's give our attention Revelation chapter 6, verse 1. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand, and I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for denarius, and three quarts of barley for denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. Then he opened the fourth seal. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard a, the voice of the fourth living creature Say, come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And its rider's name was Death. And Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree shed its, sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. 
for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? This morning, we're going to be looking at the first 11 verses of chapter 6, looking at the first five seals. Let's ask the Lord to bless His Word. God in heaven, you've given this to be a revelation as Jesus um, speaks to His church and calls us to see the truth, the way things uh, really are, and uh, to see above all that Jesus Christ holds human history in His hand. Uh, for his glory and for our good. Oh, minister that truth to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. If you could ask God uh, one question concerning the events of your life or the events of human history, uh, what would you ask him? If you had just one question. And would you ask him a what question or a when question or a, a why question? Uh, if you asked a what question, you might ask a question like, what will happen to me? What will happen to my family, my, my children and great-great-great-grandchildren? Uh, what will happen to our country? Those might be the sorts of questions you might ask. Uh, when questions would probably be, um, when will Jesus come back? That was uh, one of the favorite questions of the disciples. They would say, Lord, uh, when will these things take place? And Jesus always responded to when questions, well, with, uh, well that's not for you to know. Uh, he, wouldn't, he wouldn't answer the when question. Even uh, when he was ascending to heaven, their last question to him is, uh, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Uh, we like to know when. But, but answers to when questions would not be the most helpful to us. So imagine that Jesus actually told us when. Imagine Jesus said, well, uh, I'll, I'll be coming again uh, 3,543 A.D., there's your, there's your when. How much would that really help you? You see, because the, the, the questions that really challenge our faith aren't when questions. We believe Jesus is coming again, and, and, and when he's coming doesn't really, I don't think many of you lay awake at night wondering when that's going to happen. It's the why questions that challenge our faith. Why um, is, is, is our life so much less than what we'd hoped it would be. Why do great tragedies happen around the world or in our family or among loved ones? Why do children die and marriages fall apart? Why does wickedness seem to be so strong? Why do we feel so powerless? It's the why questions that most challenge our faith. And, and Jesus answers why questions. Uh, because, because Jesus knows that it is uh, when we have a sense of the purposes of God uh, that we're able to endure the suffering. And so the, the Bible gives us answers to the why questions, not specific details. So um, why did your car break down when you were on your way to that important appointment where you were going to interview for a new job and it really was going to be the open door and you missed the whole thing uh, because you had a flat tire? Uh, God doesn't give you a why for that specific event. What he does do, though, is uh, give us in Scripture everything we need to know for faith and hope and joy and godliness as we endure the suffering, trusting in the hands uh, of God, trusting ourselves 
to the hand of God. So, so what we see in Revelation chapter 6 is Jesus pulling back again the veil between time and eternity. Jesus showing us the reality of our world and human history from the perspective of heaven so that we will have confidence and hope and joy and endurance in the context of suffering, the suffering that we're going to experience in this world. As I said, we need to read then this chapter, chapter 6, and this vision in light of what has just preceded it, where um, Jesus steps forward as the lion and the lamb, the only one in all the world who is worthy to take the scroll and open its seals. And we talked last week about that scroll being the divine Uh, purposes of God in human history. His purpose is to redeem his people, to make everything new, and his purpose is to rid the world of evil, to destroy the devil and all his hosts, and to bring justice to the wicked. So all of God's redemptive purposes for God's glory and for the the accomplishment of his, uh, his saving plan to rescue sinners and to make them citizens of a new heaven and a new earth All of that is in the scroll. And that scroll was given to the Lamb, the one who alone is worthy. And Jesus now, in chapter 6, begins breaking open the seals. And as Jesus opens the seals one after another, we see what was in the scroll. We see the plans and purposes of God unfolding. So let's give our attention then to these seals. We'll look at the first five this morning. I've just broken this into uh, three basic points, of course. Uh, The first, a world of death, because uh, that's what we we see. I watched, John C., it says, verse 1, I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures around the throne say with a voice like thunder, come, and what comes is a rider on a white horse. That's the first seal, and that, that pattern is repeated for the first four seals. You have a, wide, a rider on a white horse who's given a crown and sent out conquering and to conquer. Uh, then the second seal, you have a rider on a red horse, and he is allowed to take peace from the world so that people should slay one another. Then the third seal, a rider on a black horse who brings famine so that, that uh, prices skyrocket. And it takes a day, um, uh, a week's wages now to pay for um, some, some food. Uh, seal four, a rider on a pale horse, and, and his name is Death in Hades. And they're given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and famine and pestilence and wild beasts. Now, there are... Um, Lots of ink spilled. There's a lot of ink been spilled on trying to interpret exactly what these four horsemen are, what uh, events maybe they point to in in the the history of the world. I don't think that's um, what we're meant to do at all. And so I'm not going to get into the weeds on it. This guy says this, and this guy says that. I don't think it's the point. When a when an artist draws a a great painting, uh, he does not intend you to. Try to uh, wonder why he used maybe a particular individual stroke of the brush in this place or or to fixate just on a small portion of the scene. The artist wants you to stand back and see the painting as a whole. 
and to experience the, the, the painting as a whole. It's not inappropriate to study it in detail, so if you want to, you know, see what everyone says about who the pale horse is, knock yourself out. There's commentaries uh, galore that'll, that'll help you do that, and it's, it's fascinating, but it's not the point. You see, the this vision that John sees is not something to be dissected, but to be, but to be experienced and, and, and to really get the main point, because all these images are, are, are moving towards one end, and there's one main point. What's the point? The point is that as Jesus opens the seals, we see that these, these uh, horsemen symbolizing death and disaster are sent into human history. These horsemen all, if you notice, represent loss of life. Uh, through siege and famine, through disease, through, the, uh, they, 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 through warfare, they all end in loss of life. And, and, and it's not a pointing to a future event, it's pointing to the present world. We live in the end times. Uh, the, the last days in the Bible are everything between Christ's ascension and Christ's coming again. That's where we are. That's where we live. And so Jesus is showing us the world as it is and as it will be until he returns for the final time. And so we should expect then, as the church, to see crises and wars and famines and all the suffering and death that they possess. Jesus is telling us God's purpose for the world, and it includes the four horsemen. Now, that does not mean the world cannot improve in various ways, uh, because the fact is it does. Um, Steven Pinker has made a... um, a career out of pointing out how the world is in, in various ways improving, even though everyone sort of has the sense it's, it's uh, going off the cliff. Um, in his latest TED Talk, Pinker makes his case for human progress, says last year the world had a 12 ongoing wars, 10% of the world population was in extreme poverty, and there were more than 10,000 nuclear weapons. But he says before you panic... It's important to realize that 30 years ago, there were 23 ongoing wars, not 12. 37% of the world was in extreme poverty, not 10. And there were more than 60,000 nuclear weapons uh, instead of 10. Now, um, there are a lot of people who look at that and who say, well, you know, this uh, man is doing quite well. And, and uh, if we just continue to exercise our abilities and our intellect as men, and uh, we can actually create a utopia. Well, Revelation chapter 6 stands to remind us that no matter what progress humans might be making, of course, all by the gracious hand of God, whatever progress is being made, the nature, the fundamental nature of this age remains unchanged. This age is an age of death. We live in a world of death. That's what Revelation 6 stands for. All the four horsemen point to causes of death. And 
remind us that all of this is not by accident or unfortunate a consequence, but God's own sovereign purpose and plan. So that brings us to the second point, a sovereign Lord. The scroll, as we said last week, contains God's purposes for the world. And Jesus takes the scroll and Jesus opens the seals. And so all four horsemen are sent by the authority of the Lamb. They proceed at His command. And they operate within his set boundaries. And so the third horseman is, is allowed to drive up the prices of wheat and barley, but don't touch the oil and the wine. There are boundaries established. The first horseman is given a crown. He's given authority and power to conquer. And the question is, well, who gave him that authority? And the answer, of course, is Jesus did. And the second horseman is permitted to take peace from the earth so that people slay one another. And the question is, well, who gave him that permission? And the answer is what Jesus did. The third horseman has to operate within the bounds that Jesus sets. The fourth horseman is given a fourth of the earth uh, to kill with sword and famine and pestilence. And, and again, we're meant to see the sovereign hand of Jesus engaged in controlling all these things. And so what we have in Revelation 6 is a vision of awful, destructive, fatal events happening on earth, all under the supervision and the authority of the Lamb. G.K. Beale writes this, Revelation 6 through 8, 5 is intended to show that Christ rules over an apparently chaotic world and that suffering does not occur indiscriminately or by chance. This vision reveals that the destructive events are brought about by Christ for both redemptive and judicial purposes. Now let's, let's bring that just into the reality of lived life, okay? Let's, let's think about the 20th century. It's estimated that in World War I, 17 to 20 million people lost their life. Uh, World War II, the estimates are uh, that range somewhere between 60 and 80 million, because we just don't know, for instance, how many people uh, Stalin um, starved to death or, or killed. In our lifetime, we've seen horrific genocides like Cambodia and Rwanda. In the last 15 years, we've seen a tsunami take 230,000 people in Indonesia, 18,000 people in Japan in 2011. Okay, that, that's, these are current events. And this is what um, people call the problem of evil. Uh, the problem of evil is, is the idea that uh, given that these awful, devastating things happen in the world... There cannot be a loving, heavenly God who sovereignly oversees and ordains the events of this world. That, 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 that we just, the world cannot put those two concepts together. Either there is no God, uh, which would make the most sense, or if there is a God, he is inherently evil and not to be worshipped, or so pathetically weak, there is no point in believing him in the first place. The problem of evil, for many, uh, in, in, in the minds of many, just stands as an insurmountable obstacle to faith in the Christian God, the biblical God. The world doesn't have a category for Revelation chapter 6. 
For a lamb who was slain to redeem sinners for God, and that lamb, in his authority and power, that lamb authorizing and permitting these horrific events to happen in the world. Unfortunately, the church is also losing the category of Revelation chapter 6. One of my chief concerns with modern American Christianity is its shallow understanding of God. And you can, you can take that from the, health, the, the, the outrageous, right, far edge of the health-wealth gospel to the, sort of the center of evangelicalism where Jesus is, is a life coach and, and, and God just loves me, moral therapeutic deism. God's a nice God who wants me to be a nice person and he exists to help me. So in that, in that realm, you see, there's, there's no category for Revelation 6. There's no, there's no category for, a, for real suffering and widespread tragedy such as these four horsemen symbolize. If you really believe that God exists to give you your best life now, and, and millions of Americans believe that in one fashion or another, and maybe even in our own hearts we have that in, in, in mind, that, that God really is intending to, to give us the best life possible here and now. If that is your God, then you will inevitably think that that God has failed you when your life plunges into disaster and suffering. When World War III breaks out, you won't have a category, you see, for a God who actually intends and, 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 and ordains these events as your loving Father and your reigning Jesus. You see, we have, to, we have to, Revelation 6 forces us to rethink the way we think about God and the way we think about tragedies. So what if the violence, take the problem of evil, okay? What, what, what if the violence and disasters that we see in the world were not evidences of God's absence, but were evidences of his presence? What if they were precisely God at work in the world judging this world. So, so what if they're not signs of his, of his apathy, as people so quickly assume, but instead signs of his just wrath? And, and what, if, what if these things happen not because God doesn't care about his creation, but because he cares with a love and a vengeance that we cannot fathom? And therefore is committed with all of his holy fur to, to wipe out what is evil, to punish evildoers. This vision, you see, friends, calls us to, to read our headlines from a different perspective. This, this vision is, is meant to guard your heart from unbelief and despair when trial and tragedy happens. Because this vision shows us, you see, that the evil and the, the wickedness and, and this suffering in the world is not just evidence of a world at war with God, but God at war with a world in order to redeem it. We have examples of that in Scripture, don't we? Pharaoh, think of King, mighty Pharaoh, in, right, the, the ruler of Egypt. And Moses comes and says, God says, let my people go. And, and Pharaoh says, well... Uh, not going to do it. Or then he'll say yes and then change his mind no. And 
10 times over and over, rebelliously, in flagrant um, violation of God's revealed will, and in the face of the experiences of God's wrath in the plagues, Pharaoh will not let the people go. No one, you see, can deny then that when God destroys Pharaoh's army, every last man of them in the Red Sea, that God is is acting in divine justice and that God has ordained the evil of Pharaoh to be the destruction of Pharaoh and the deliverance of Israel. It's a completely different way of thinking about human history. Uh, It's a way of thinking about human history that actually has a, a God in heaven who knows exactly what he's about. Now we can say, okay, well that's that's a long time ago. And maybe several thousand, several tens of thousands died. What do you do at the World War II? 80 million killed. 230,000 in a day killed in Indonesia by a tsunami. I mean, those sorts of of numbers and that reality will will stagger you if you have a vision of a small God who, who exists to do the best he can to give you the best possible experience in the few short years that you have here in this world. But what if it's not like that? What if God is so glorious and that the rebellion of, of man, the creature, is then so weighty in its offense and so incredibly evil that world wars and tsunamis are a just and appropriate response. You see, Revelation 6 forces us to consider that God is vastly greater and more glorious, and more worthy of worship and honor than we had ever conceived, and that consequently our sin is vastly more awful than that his judgments then against this wicked world, as awful as those judgments are, are actually truly just. And we don't have to apologize as God judges a wicked world world. I'm convinced there are no angels in heaven shaking their head in quiet disbelief over the judgments of God against this wicked world. On the other hand, I am convinced that there are countless thousands of angels who stand in stunned amazement at God's patience and goodness to this wicked world as he sends rain on the just and the unjust. And he gives us beautiful days and seasons and and blessings. See, Revelation chapter 6 is meant to give us a, a much bigger vision of God. A vision that enables us to be unmovable in the face of, of suffering and tragedy. Jesus, do you remember what he says that will happen in the last days when there's, when there's great tribulation in the world? Do you remember what he says will happen? Many will fall away. The love of many will grow cold. And they will fall away on account of me. Because they believe that their God was was supposed to give them their best life now. And if if he could not do that or would not do that, they were not interested in his services. However, if Revelation 6 is true, 
and that Jesus ordains the horsemen. Jesus ordains the removal of peace so that people slay each other. Jesus ordains the conquering and the famine and the pestilence and the beast. If, if that's true, then how does that not make Jesus the author of evil? That'll be the other challenge that people raise. And it's, it's not illegitimate. How, how, how does it not make him the author of evil? And we have to say, honestly, we don't have an airtight, logical answer to that. Except, A, God promises he is not the author. God cannot sin. God is not the author of evil. That everything that, that we find people doing in Revelation chapter 6, people do because they want to do it and are therefore morally culpable before God. Pharaoh was, uh, he, God hardened his heart, and yet Pharaoh was uh, hardening his own heart. You'll read both of those in the account. And Pharaoh, therefore, doing what he wanted to do, rebel against God, justly suffers for the acts that he performed. But the Bible gives us more than just a uh, statement that, that God is not the author of evil. Uh, there, is a, there is a clue to how God engages this world in its evil. There's a clue in the cross of Jesus Christ itself. There, the cross of Christ, as you know, is the most profoundly wicked thing that ever, ever happened and ever can happen. As the only innocent man who ever lived, the very Son of God, was unjustly condemned and crucified by wicked men. It's the most evil act in the history of the world. And yet Peter, in Acts chapter 2 confidently asserts that those wicked men did only what God in his, uh, accord, put Jesus to death according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, quote, the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, that God ordained that act of evil in order to accomplish his judging and redeeming purposes. In that act of evil, the devil is is defeated and the elect of God are redeemed. So friends, that, that gives us insight into what's happening in the world, into the ways of God. The evil and the tragedies, they're happening according to the plan and foreknowledge of God to similar God-glorifying, devil-destroying, church-redeeming ends. Jesus gave us Revelation chapter 6 so that we can know what he's about in the world. And it's, it's critical that we listen. I know we sit here on a, on, a, on a Sunday morning in West Michigan and all is well with the world. I mean, we finally, uh, it's summertime stretching out in front of us and, and, and the lawn looks nice and the flowers are doing well and um, you got vacation just ahead of you. And this just seems like a sort of an odd intrusion into your really nice West Michigan life. Doesn't really make sense. Brothers and sisters, it's going to make sense. Revelation chapter 6 is, is written to a church that was suffering and to a church that is going to suffer. And Jesus wants us to understand who he is, what he's like, and what he's about in the tragedies that we are going to experience. Notice, then, finally, a suffering church. 
When he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. I just want you to see uh, the church in heaven What do we know about these people who have died in the faith for the cause of Christ? Well, we're told several things. They are souls. Their their bodies are in the grave. But their soul, their person in conscious existence is in the presence of Christ. That's what it means when he says they're under the altar. I, I remember as a little guy trying to imagine all these people crammed under the altar. This piece of furniture. Okay, I had a vivid imagination. Uh, That's not, that's obviously not the point. The point is they are in the holy of holies. They're in the very presence of God. They're in the very presence of Jesus. They are there under the loving, sheltering arms of God. Remember, the altar had the cherubim with their wings stretched out. They are safe. That's what we're meant to see. And they are conquerors. They're given white robes. White robes are given both as a sign of purity and a sign of victory. In other words, they are glorified in the presence of Christ, not finally and perfectly yet, but they are there as conquerors, not victims, though their lives had been taken from them. And they are there at rest. They're told to rest a little while longer, meaning they're already enjoying Sabbath rest, the shalom, the peace of God. That's what we're told about their experience. Well, what are they doing? Well, they're calling out here in Revelation chapter 6. We know in other places they're, they're, they're worshiping. Here in Revelation 6, they're calling out for God to vindicate their death. In other words, notice again, they're not shocked by the severity of God's dealing with this wicked world. They're surprised by his leniency. How long, O oh Lord? How long? It's a when question. How long before you vindicate our blood? Vindicate your name. Vindicate and accomplish your full redemptive purposes. Jesus' response is, I think it's just stunning. They were told to rest, quote, until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. What what does that tell us? It tells us on the one hand that the clock of human history is being driven by the death of Christian martyrs. That the, the tick, tick, tick of the clock of human history is the death of martyrs. And that when the death of martyrs, when the number of the of the martyrs that has been appointed by God, when that number is reached, history is done. That's what Jesus is saying. But notice also that the the fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they themselves have have been tells us that that there's a, God has appointed martyrs. That the suffering of the church today is not by accident. It's not the unfortunate byproduct of living in a fallen world that's under judgment. We are not collateral damage as God judges the world. And unfortunately, a few Christians um, experience the blast of it. That's, That's not the point. 
The point is that the martyrs are the point. God is determined to glorify his name and accomplish his saving purpose through the suffering of the church, through the martyrdom of his saints. And if you look at the history of the church, the martyrdom and the suffering, the willing suffering of the church for Christ's sake has been one of the key methods that God has used to gather in the elect. I remember reading a story, I think it was in Richard Wormbrand's um, book, and um, about, a, about a, a, like a 12, 13-year-old girl, a Romanian girl, I believe, who was joining a secret Bible study, and, and one day the police broke in, and, um, and everyone was beaten, and, um, and left bruised and bleeding. Few were arrested. The next week, the Bible study uh, gathers again, same place. And the police come again. And the leader of the police is enraged that these people have the audacity after having been so clearly warned and, and, and punished for their crime of having a Bible study. The leader uh, just lets that full um, anger pour out and they, his, his, his men just start beating uh, the, the Dickens. And they grab this 13-year-old girl and one man begins just punching her. And suddenly the leader of the group screams out, stop, stop, stop. And with, with shock and tears running down his face, this man says, she has something we don't have. Leave her alone. And that man became a Christian. The suffering of the church has, some, has been one of the most powerful weapons that God has used to call his elect children home. If we want to be an effective evangelizing body of Jesus Christ, if we care about lost people, Revelation 6 tells us that, that suffering is, is going to be part of that. We're going to have to allow God to mess with our comfortable lives. Jesus asks us, to suffer with him and for him so that other people can be saved as well. And the question is, are we willing to do that? Are we willing to let Jesus interfere according to his sovereign purpose and, and, and enjoying all the good gifts he gives but recognizing this life is not our home? Because that's, that's how the vision ends. Next, we'll, next Sunday, Lord willing, look at the sixth seal. I'd like you just to turn to Revelation 7. We're going to end by reading that sixth seal. And I'd like you to read it with me. Revelation chapter 7. Because it shows us the final glory. It shows us what this is all moving towards. John writes in verse 9 of Revelation chapter 7. After this I looked and behold... A great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Verse 13. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. 
Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That is what is yet to come. And Jesus wants us to see the glory of it, the reality of it. He wants us to live in this world with our hearts set on the world to come. And so to live in this world, then enduring the suffering, whatever suffering God calls us to, as we engage in the mission that Christ has commanded us to follow. And to do it all with the joyful conviction that we are saints in the hands of a sovereign king, that we live in a world over which Jesus is actually ruling, and he knows what he's doing, and he promises to be your shepherd in this life and through eternity. Is that enough? Is that enough for your hope, for your joy, for your comfort, and for your engagement in the cause of Christ? May God grant it. Amen. Jesus Christ, you've revealed yourself this morning to us again as our sovereign Lord and King. Oh Lord, I pray that you would forgive us for reading our, the headlines with unbelieving hearts. I thank you that you give us insight into what's really happening in the world. That in the tragedies and disasters we see a holy God exercising judgment with a wicked world. And yet that same God sent his own son Jesus Christ to save sinners. And we are stunned at who you are, the glory that belongs to you, the worship that is owed to you, the grace and love that flow from you. We thank you that the Jesus who reigns knows our name and he knows our tears and promises to one day wipe them from our eyes. God in heaven, you know what you've ordained for our lives. You know the, the heartaches, the losses, the suffering, the disasters. And Lord, I thank you that you invite us this morning to trust you with all of it. Because this world is not our home. Because you are doing a glorious, God-honoring, devil-destroying, church-building work even through our lives. And one day we will see it all in your presence. And so Lord, help us to live as people with a big vision of a great God, of a glorious future, and a King Jesus who reigns to ensure that if we confess our sin, if we cast ourselves upon him, we shall share with him that victor's crown. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.